It's reading from John chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. John chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. Hear the word of the true and living God. If I have told you of earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As far as reading God's holy and inspired words, you may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day morning, and we thank you for all of your many blessings. Lord, now as we commemorate what you have done, both in the incarnation and ultimately the resurrection and the hope that we have through Christ, we pray that you would bless us. And Lord, as your word is proclaimed, we pray that you would bless it. We pray that you would cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people. Lord, we pray that you would use the preached word unto the conversion of sinners and unto the edification of your saints. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. It is uh, great to be with you all here on this Lord's Day, uh, celebrating not only the resurrection as we do every week, uh, but also the coming of Christ, the incarnation. Now, we didn't do an Advent series this year, as it felt like we had only just got rolling with our series in John. Uh, but as it happens in God's providence, uh, we have a text this morning that I think will work fairly well as a Christmas sermon. So as is our usual practice, we will simply pick up where we left off the week before, uh, that being John chapter 3. Now you may remember we had been unpacking Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, a, a Pharisee, uh, likely a member of the Sanhedrin, and he came to Jesus by night. Jesus taught him about the need for the new birth, and we even saw last week that Jesus rebuked Nicodemus for not understanding him on this point. Now, to get the immediate context, let's begin in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we have seen, of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, first question that comes to mind for me is, why does Jesus speak in the plural? Right? He begins, truly, truly, I say to you, singular, but then he switches to the plural. We speak of what we know. Now, it's been suggested by some 
that Jesus was including his disciples here, uh, or perhaps uh, the prophets, all those who would testify uh, to the truth, all those who had ever spoken on behalf of God. Um, it's been suggested perhaps to John the Baptist or, or the uh, disciples. Um, regarding the disciples, it's unlikely that at this early point, uh, they would have been included here, since John, through the rest of his gospel, is careful to demonstrate when the disciples did not fully grasp what was happening. Uh, we see, we'll see through the Gospel of John how the disciples' understanding was something that grew through Jesus' ministry. And so D.A. Carson suggests that Jesus here is actually mimicking the language that Nicodemus used back in verse 2. Uh, if you look back with me there, Nicodemus had first used the plural saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus had begun by speaking of what we know, uh, likely referring to at least a few of the other rulers of the Jews, or perhaps distancing himself uh, by using the plural, speaking on behalf of, of other people. Nicodemus came to Jesus declaring that which we know. And so this view would see Jesus responding in kind, saying, we speak of what we uh, know and testify to what we have seen. E. Carson writes, as if to say, we know one or two things too, we do. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now the word you there is plural. Jesus is now addressing likely the very same we that Nicodemus had mentioned in verse 2. Whatever respect Nicodemus had for Jesus and his profession that the signs Jesus was performing were evidence that Jesus was from God, whatever evidence or whatever respect they had, Jesus says that they did not receive his testimony. Whatever respect they may or may not have had for Christ, they had not even begun to appreciate who Jesus really was. And so Jesus then is confronting their unbelief. If I have told you, plural, all of you, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, then how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If the rulers of the Jews, including Nicodemus, had not received Jesus' testimony, if they had not believed what Jesus had already taught, which he characterizes as teaching them of earthly things, uh, perhaps referring to his discussion here, the new birth, uh, things that happen here on earth, uh, his analogies of wind and water, if they did not believe these things, if they did not believe him at this point, what would be the point in Jesus continuing to go into more depth? Uh, explaining mysteries and answering all the theological questions the Jews may have had. If they didn't even receive his testimony or believe him when he spoke of these simpler matters. And I think there's an important warning for us here as well. There is a common temptation for us to want to look into the deep things, right? To, to study these mysteries, to get these big questions and the temptation is to do this when we haven't even properly grasped or begun to live out the basics. Right? We would love to debate these finer points of theology, spend our time speculating about this or that doctrine, frequently to the neglect of basic 
Christian duties. We would take pride in our deep knowledge of theology and doctrine. We could spend hours debating the minutiae, thinking ourselves very mature and wise, when all of this interest in doctrine may just be a cover for our neglect of basic Christian duties. Do you think God cares how much you know about eschatology if you don't make a practice of denying yourself to live like Christ? Do you think God cares about your nuanced position on this or that complicated political issue if you still routinely snap at your wife? Do you think God is impressed by your show of piety if it doesn't take root in your actions? If it doesn't affect how you behave? To live this way would be to come under Christ's rebuke to the Pharisees. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Right? You are tithing from your herb garden while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, what good is it if he can discern all mysteries but has not love? Or he is like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now all of this is not at all to say that theology doesn't matter, uh, but rather to point out that theology needs to have an impact on how we live. Right? Our theology must lead to doxology. It must bring us to worship. Our knowledge of God must be developing in us a greater love for God. And if it's not producing greater obedience, more earnest love, a more gracious life, then there is good reason to question whether we have really understood the implications of our theology. What is the point of discussing the high things, the heavenly things, if you haven't even believed or obeyed Christ in the simple things. Now back to the text. Despite the Jews' rejection of him, Jesus asserts that he is, in fact, qualified to speak of heavenly things. Verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Right? Who is qualified to teach of heavenly things, who has ascended, so to speak, into the courts of God, that he might return and teach things to men. Now Jesus may be alluding here, referencing here, to a phrase from Deuteronomy 30. After giving the law, God says in Deuteronomy, uh, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? So the idea here in Deuteronomy is that they may not say, the Jews may not say that they need someone to go to heaven, to ascend to heaven, to learn the will of God and then return and teach them because God had already bridged that gap. Right? God himself had descended on Mount Sinai, delivered his law, revealed his will. And in much the same way, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man is the very one who descended from the Father, descended from heaven. As the prologue of John's Gospel has shown us, God the Son, 
The eternal logos, the eternal word, is pre-existent. He was in the beginning with God. And he has now come to further reveal to us the will and character of the Father. And so if you won't come to Christ and uh, believe in him and come to him to learn of heavenly things, the fact is you will have no other source. Right? No mere man can ascend to heaven and return to teach man. But Christ, the Son of Man, who has been eternally at the Father's side, has now come down as a man to do and to reveal the Father's will. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let's continue reading with verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus begins to explain the importance of believing in him with another analogy from Israel's history. You can turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, almost all the way to the left. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. You can follow along, and I'll summarize the text here. Uh, so at this point, God is leading Israel through the wilderness. And once again, uh, the people begin uh, to get impatient. And they begin grumbling against God and against Moses. It's a funny one, actually, where they say, um, you brought us into this wilderness to die, and uh, there is no food, and we hate this loathsome food. There is no food, and we hate it. <laughs> Uh, so they are grumbling against God. And then we see in verse 6, uh, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So we see here that God's people sinned. They grumbled against God. And as we've seen, as we worked through Exodus and uh, through the... Old Testament and Sunday school, that this is truly a great evil. God considers grumbling, complaining against him, to be a form of rebellion. It is an assault on God's goodness. It is an assault on God's ability to lead. It is an attack on his providence. It is saying, in essence, as we grumble, that God is not doing a good job as God. Or perhaps that, well, if I were God, things would be better. Right? I'd do a better job governing my life if I was in charge. I would do a better job than what God is doing. And I hope you can all hear it, but that is blasphemy. Violation of the third commandment. That is rebellion, and we learn exactly what God thinks 
of this kind of blasphemy. God sends venomous snakes among the people who begin biting and killing the people of Israel. And so the people cry out for salvation. And God tells Moses, build a statue of a snake. Build a statue of a snake, put it on a pole, and, and lift it up in the sight of the people. And then if anybody is bit by a snake and they're going to die, have them go look at that snake and they will live. So just follow with me and, and look at the core elements of this storyline. So we start off seeing that God's people have sinned. They are guilty before the Lord. We see that God pronounces a curse on them so that they are now under the sentence of death. We then see that God also provides a means of salvation so that all who look to what God has provided would be delivered from death. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus says that just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so too must he be lifted up. So that those who believe in him, those who look to him in faith, may have eternal life. Now how was the Son of Man going to be lifted up on the cross? Now all mankind, every single one of us, due to our sin, is in the position of the snake-bitten Israelites. Israel had sinned against God, and God cursed them for their sin. He brought judgment upon them. You think of it, a bite from one of those snakes was a death sentence. Similarly, we are all under the curse of death. And scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. We are all subject to this curse. We are all bitten by a snake, and it is only a matter of time before we will face that condemnation, that death sentence. The fact is, unless God intervenes, it will not only be physical death, but eternal death, eternal suffering in hell. And so like the snake-bitten Israelites, we too are going to face the judgment of death for our rebellion against God. And the good news just as God provided the bronze snake for the people to look to and be saved, so also Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Like the bronze snake, he has become the instrument, the means of salvation that God has provided for his people. Such that those who look to him, who believe in him, may have eternal life would be delivered from that sentence of condemnation. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was on the cross that Jesus took the penalty for the sin of his people. He was lifted up on the cross to die in our place, to satisfy what justice required what the nature of God required, so that God could be both just and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 
So see the importance of believing in Jesus, right? Jesus says, I have testified and you do not believe, you do not receive my testimony. Look at the importance of believing in him. It is only those who believe in him, who look to him as the Israelites to the bronze snake, who will be saved. Here we see a further development of this theme in John's Gospel, who tells us that he wrote, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. As we saw in the prologue, it is those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, whom he gave the right to become the children of God. We are not his children by nature, but those who believe may become the children of God, to become an heir of God, and here to receive the gift of eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now before we begin unpacking this glorious and familiar statements, we have an issue to address, and that is, there have been many people who have tried to use this verse as if it were the clear and definitive refutation of Reformed theology. Their argument, essentially, is that Scripture says, whoever believes may be saved, God commands all people to believe, and, quote, God would not command people to do what they cannot do. So in in this way of thinking, the free offer of the gospel is given as proof that man must either have the natural capacity in himself to respond to the gospel, which would be the heresy of Pelagianism, if you take that perspective, or that God must grant enough grace to everyone so that they are put back into a position where they can make a free will choice. Uh, to either accept or reject the offer of the gospel. And that is uh, really Wesleyan Arminianism, or what we, what we would call semi-Pelagianism. Um, so the problems with this perspective, I hope, are obvious to you. Um, firstly, the statement that God would not command people to do what they cannot do is patently false. Consider Exodus 7, uh, verses 2 and 3, where God said to Moses, You shall speak all that I command you, And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So there's the question for us. Did God command Pharaoh to let Israel go? Yes, he did. Did that imply or necessarily entail that Pharaoh must have had the capacity, the ability, the free will to comply with that command. Well, quite clearly not, as God himself said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So the objection comes when we turn to Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Scripture says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Romans 9, 19 and 20. 
So we just go there to show that this claim is false on the face of it. God giving a command does not imply anything at all about the natural capacity of man. Right? The fact that God commands us to do things does not imply that we are, that we are not fallen, uh, nor does it prove the idea of what theologians call prevenient grace, the idea that God must give enough grace uh, so that all people are put into a neutral state where they can make their free will choice. And in fact, the irony of trying to use John 3.16 in this way is that it seems to really miss the context of John 3. For Jesus has just said, as we looked at last week, that unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As we covered last week, there is first a spiritual work that must be done in the heart before someone can see and enter the kingdom. We must be born of the Spirit. And I hope you can see as well that this is more than just prevenient grace. Right? This is, I guess it is a form of prevenient grace, but uh, it is God actually transforming us uh, into, um, into new creatures. We must be born of the Spirit to have our heart of stone removed, to be given a heart that works, heart that beats for the Lord, and we must be made alive. The Spirit must breathe new life into us. So then, how should we view this statement, uh, whosoever believeth in him? It does not imply that we are not by nature dead in sin. As always, we must read in context. For unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we ask the question, who will believe in Jesus? Right? Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Who will believe in Jesus? Well, if we're reading in context, then we would know that without the work of the Spirit, nobody can see or enter the kingdom. So then, if anyone truly does believe in Christ, right, they are seeing and entering the kingdom of God, we see that they could not do, uh, they could not do this without being born again, being born of the Spirit of God. Therefore, those who believe will be only those who are born again by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, you who believe in Christ, give thanks to God for granting you his Spirit to cause you to be born again who removed your heart of stone, who granted you a heart of flesh. Salvation is of the Lord. Uh, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's continue on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, D.A. Carson writes here as well, uh, Jews were familiar with the truth that God loved the children of Israel. Here, we see that God's love is not restricted uh, simply to the Jews. It is not restricted by, by ethnicity. Even so, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That is the customary connotation of cosmos or world, close quote. And so God's love for the world, evil as it is, 
is demonstrated through the giving of his monogamous son. You may remember his only begotten son, his only unique son. God's love is demonstrated through the giving of his son. As we gather with friends and family to celebrate the incarnation, that is the entrance of the eternal son into his own creation, as we remember the coming of the only unique son, the heir of all things, born in a stable, laid in a manger, let us remember May this be in the front and center of our minds, that this glorious gift is the clearest demonstration of the Father's love. Here is the origin and source of salvation. Not in us, but in the love of God, who loved the unlovable. Consider with me the importance of understanding the love of God. Now as central as the love of God is to the Christian message, I believe that many Christians may still struggle to believe and receive the love of God. And I think this is a particular danger for those of us who have seen the problems with the way that some Christians speak of God's love. Right? Many of us have rightly rejected what we see as a very man-centered approach to God's love, which will speak of God's love in mushy and at times uh, borderline erotic terms. I'll show you some quotes from some songs. Uh, we, have, we have seen the errors in those who would speak of God's love for man as if it magnified the worth of man and not the grace of God. Right? We, people say, wow, there must be something really special about me <laughs> that God would send his son. Um, right? So we have come to see our own sin and depravity. We have come to see that God acts firstly and primarily for his own glory in all things. But we need to understand that whenever we are responding or reacting to something, the danger is always there that we would overreact. Right? That we would go too far in the other direction. That we would swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme. That we would throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, that getting unstuck from one ditch, we would launch across the road <laughs> and get stuck in the other ditch. And so in this case... The danger is that in responding to these perceived imbalances or faulty views of God's love, the danger is that we would end up downplaying or diminishing the radical, deep, holy, and sovereign love of God. This must never be. The love of God, the love of the Father in this case, is essential to the life of a Christian. The great Puritan John Owen argues that apart from knowing and receiving the love of the Father, we will not be able to delight in him. Owen writes, Many saints have no greater burden in their lives than recognizing that their hearts do not constantly delight and rejoice in God. Their spirit is still indisposed to walking closely with him, 
What is at the bottom of this? Is it not their lack of skill or neglect of duty in holding communion with the Father in love? Catch this. We will delight in him only to the extent that we see God's love. We will delight in him only to the extent that we see God's love. Without this, every other revelation of God will only make us fly from him. Picture Martin Luther terrified of God. Uh, he said he did not love, but he hated this wrathful God. Right? Without this, every other revelation of God will only make us fly from him. But once the heart realizes the eminence of the Father's love, it cannot help being overpowered, conquered, and endeared to him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Put this to the test. Ponder the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the father, and see if your heart isn't stimulated to delight in him. I dare say believers will find it as thriving a course as they ever pitched, pitched on in their lives. Sit down for a little while, at the fountain, and you will quickly discover the sweetness of the streams. If you have run from him in the past, you will not be able to keep your distance for a moment. Come to the fountain. Come and ponder the love of the Father. Do you struggle, Christian, to believe in the love of God. Well, consider with me how God has said that he has proven it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you struggle to believe and receive God's love, bring to mind the baby laid in a manger who came to be the savior of the world. A baby who was no ordinary child, but was God's only begotten son, his unique son, his monogamous, monogamous son. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That is, the love of God was proven, was demonstrated, was put on display. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. First John 4, verse 9. Brothers and sisters, what greater gift could God have possibly given us? What greater demonstration of the love of the Father could you possibly ask for? God, the Son, the theme of heaven's praises as we sing, the heir of all things, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, was given for us. And God says, this is how I have proven my love, demonstrated my love, made my love manifest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you are in Christ, let there be no further questioning of God's love for you. 
ponder deeply this Christmas the amazing love of God. With every gift that is opened, ponder the gift that God gave to you. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hear the promise and the free offer of the gospel. Eternal life is offered. Christ has purchased the pardon for all who would believe in him. Let us hear and proclaim the gospel in all its simplicity. Now to this point in John 3, we've been given a bit of a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Jesus has told us some of what happens behind the scenes, some of what happens inside the heart of man. Right? We know from Christ that it is only through the work of God that anyone will come. But we must be careful not to overcomplicate matters in our evangelism. Right? As you think of it, when we're teaching our children, we don't begin introducing them to Christianity by speaking of the hypostatic union or debating the logical order of God's decrees. But rather, you begin with the basics. So too, as we proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard it, have not received it, we should not trouble them yet with questions of election or effectual calling. Right? Those are matters of Christian discipleship. God gave them to us for a reason, uh, but we, we don't start there. Let us instead simply offer the promises of God. Let us hold out the free offer of the gospel. God has truly promised that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. They will not face condemnation. The sentence of death and judgment that all mankind is under for our sin, that sentence, that judgment will not fall on them. Because for those who believe in Christ, their sentence fell on him. The gospel is the promise of a perfect and eternal pardon for sin, purchased by Christ. And so as the angels declared to the shepherds, it is good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not merely for the Jews, for the people of Israel. We can apply that not only for those who have lived respectable or morally upright lives up until this point, but it is good news for all. If you will believe in Christ, if you will turn from your sin recognize and confess your need for a savior if you will throw yourself upon the mercy of god in christ you will not perish but receive eternal life eternal life sin death and pain and suffering swallowed up forever life everlasting Heavenly rewards, streets of gold, glory so weighty that our very real pain and suffering in this life will not be worth comparing to it. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
So we see Christ's mission in his first coming was not primarily about judgment, but rather to bring salvation to the world. Charles Ellicott notes that part of the Jewish expectation regarding the coming of their Messiah was that he was going to come to destroy the Gentile world. And so we see Christ, uh, would, this verse here would correct such a view. Christ came as Savior. Good news of great joy for all. He is the Jewish Messiah, but more than that, he is the Savior of the world. The gospel, therefore, is for all. The kingdom will cover the earth. And here we are, 2,000 years later, halfway across the world, probably not many of us with a Jewish background, and we have received blessing. He is our Savior. Good news of great joy for all the people. The kingdom will cover the earth. The earth will be as full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, as the text goes on to say, we must note that not everybody will be saved. Let's continue reading here together. <coughs> whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his, works, that his works have been carried out in God. So notice this is not the guarantee of universal salvation. It is not a promise that every single person who has ever lived will receive salvation. For as we see, those who do not believe will be condemned. So if we're not talking about universal salvation, then in what sense can Christ be said to be the Savior of the world? Well, firstly, as we mentioned, Christ is not coming only as the Jewish Messiah, as if he had a, a mission of destruction for the rest of creation. His first coming was not to bring judgment to the world, but salvation. And if we zoom out from John and look at the work of Christ as a whole, we can see then that the scope of his work is truly global. Christ came to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a multitude that no one can number, greater than the sands by the seashore or the stars in the heavens. Revelation 7-9. We see Christ presented in Scripture as the second Adam, the deliverer promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. The second Adam came to succeed where the first Adam failed. Romans 5 draws the contrast between Adam and Christ and says, Therefore, as one trespass, meaning the sin of Adam in the garden, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, or the righteousness of the one, leads to justification and life for all men. It's Romans 5.18. Jesus Christ came to take the curse upon himself, becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. 
as we love to sing at this time of year, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we see that the end result, when Christ's kingdom is fully consummated, the end result will be a redeemed and restored creation. Death swallowed up in victory. Evil destroyed. All of Christ's enemies having been made his footstool. Heaven and earth reconciled through the cross of Christ. He is the Savior of the world. And there is no other name given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, do not run from the light of the world. Do not run from the only source of salvation. Do not run from the free offer of eternal life found through Christ. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your sin. And do not continue in darkness. There is no life there is no hope. There is nothing good to be found in sin. But as you've likely experienced already, you will reap what you sow. Turn to Christ, the Savior of the world, given of the Father's love. Turn to him and find eternal life. Brothers and sisters, to close this morning, I'd encourage you to ponder the love of the Father revealed through his gift. If you give or receive gifts today, remember the gift that God gave you. Let your feasting and fellowship point you to the heavenly feast that we will join in eternity. Let your hearts and your homes overflow with the love of the Father who gave us his one and only Son. Amen and Merry Christmas.